What's up, guys? Welcome to Football Outside the Box, where we discuss the past, present, and future of football. We are back, and the first trophy has finally been awarded in England, and it is in the form of the Carabao Cup. Congratulations, Liverpool, for winning it, and Jurgen Klopp can sign off from his Liverpool spell with at least a trophy to his name. Although it is the Sippy Cup trophy, as we call it here. But yo, guys, is this just a Sippy Cup trophy for Jurgen Klopp? Or is this the sign of a man who is signing off from his arguably excellent reign at Liverpool in style? I think it's the second thing. I think it means a lot to Klopp to want to, you know, to win as many trophies as he can in his bow out. You could see he was a little bit emotional after the game, understandably. Obviously, it's not the most important trophy. I think every coach, every player knows that. But he would have loved to win that. We're so close to having another nil-nil cup final between Liverpool and Chelsea once again. But Virgil van Dijk made a difference. Or or should we say Conor Gallagher? Because he, he should have scored to, to bury that game um, pretty much. I, I, I really hope it, it shouldn't mean much to Liverpool. Um, they've won it a record 10th time now. But again, it's just Carabao Cup. But you can tell it means a lot to, to everybody. Um, not not just the manager. Um, even even the players, starting with Van Dijk. Um, I mean, good for them. I, I hope this is their last trophy. Uh, of the season. Um, but also, it's a Carabao Cup, but it should mean a lot to Klopp too because this is only his fifth trophy in nine years at Liverpool. You know, of course, he's been excellent. He has overachieved, but he's only won five trophies, really. Yeah, I think, honestly, I think that Chelsea should have scored about three times. There are three clear chances that I can remember Chelsea having. Um, I think Liverpool... Had a lot of clear chances too. I was kind of looking forward to it going to penalties. I wanted to see it go to penalties again. But my God, what another... Overall, it was just kind of another boring final. Um, I think one of the the highlights of that game, that final, is actually going to be Gary Neville's commentary. Where he called Chelsea's, you know... He, he called him billion pound bottle jobs. I mean, that has to sting a little bit. At least that's, I feel like that's sort of the intention behind it. What do you guys make of, you know, that sort of comparison? Because it was pointing to the fact that Liverpool were fielding kids, right? Despite the fact that actually the average age of both squads was really not that different. It's just the type of player that Liverpool was fielding compared to Chelsea's. What do you guys make of Neville's comments? Well, first, we need to clarify his comments. His comments were the blue billion-dollar battle jobs because he didn't know he wanted to clarify that that's not Man United. He wanted to make it clear that it was the blue ones. But whatever we let his statement be. But you made a good point about the, the age gap, the average age gap of the two sides. It was I don't know why these, everyone's coming out with this whole narrative of, Oh, Liverpool played their kids. Sure, they played a few kids, 
But it's like, bro, Van Dijk was still on the field. Konate is still on the field. Like, they still had big-name players. Okay, maybe a few other stars were out. Salah, Jota, these guys who are already out being on uh, Jota out on a lengthy injury. Man, they just love to create this narrative all the time and create this story that just to have, just to like have something to laugh at, just so they can laugh at Chelsea because Liverpool played their kids. It's foolishness. And because of that, I feel like a lot of Liverpool's young players get overhyped now beyond that. And that's just that's just me. No, I mean, I, I mean, we know the media lo- loves Liverpool. They they love them. Um, it's, it's no surprise, <laughs> really. Also, I mean, to be fair, that billion pounds has been spent on mostly young players. So, the age, yes, there was much of a gap, but uh, it it just tells you Chelsea have spent uh, so far badly those billion pounds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, look, I think that a lot. Um, a lot of football in general is narrative. At least the the media for football has to rely and hinge a lot upon narratives, right? I saw a tweet the other day that compared Chelsea's squad um, and their, you know, transfer fees paid for them compared to Real Madrid's squad with Mbappe once he arrives there compared to, you know, and the transfer fees they would have paid for them you know, Chelsea's squad was obviously, you know, costing a fair amount more than Real Madrid's. You know, anybody looking at that can tell that that is a deceptive statistic, right? We, we can't look at just the transfer fees that are paid for players and say, aha, these players should be performing better than these players who are cheaper. And if they're not, then that just means it's a disaster and a crisis and, you know, the team is just salt. That's just not how... It works, you know. We have to say we have to give credit where it's due. There have been um, some young Liverpool um, players that have come up and done really well. You know, everybody raved about Connor Bradley, who performed so well against Chelsea. Uh, you know, not not in the final, but in uh, in the in the league game, and uh, you know, they they have typically over the years they, they they've shown that they can bring up young talent. You know, we see players like Curtis Jones. Um, and the like, you know, there, there's some truth to it. But, you know, comments like that from Gary Neville, I think, only serve to further this narrative that, oh, my gosh, it was this huge disaster where Chelsea played this elite squad and Liverpool played a bunch of high schoolers and won the game. But that's how football runs. It's, it hinges on narratives a lot of the time. Yeah, and you're right. It, it comes down to the expectation at the end of the day when it's, Academy players, or is it a a hundred million signing of a twenty year old? You know, so yeah, for sure, you're right. But yo, going back to a quick comment on Conor Gallagher, I know he gets a lot of hype right now. A lot of people think he's Chelsea. He's arguably Chelsea's best midfielder. Dog, that guy is trash. Conor Gallagher is trash, bro. Straight up, the only strength he has is his work rate, his aggression. Other than that. That man should not be playing football, bro. I sometimes wonder if certain managers are, you know, are threatened by, you know, the the the, the English media mafia bosses, you know, if those even exist. Because that I, I agree with you a hundred percent. 
what I see from Conor Gallagher, he's a young English boy. Well, you know, maybe not so young, young anymore. Young English boy, blonde hair, blue eyed. They're going to love him and want him to play and start. And he runs like hell. He's a runner. And the English football media and fans tend to eat that shit up. And they always have. I agree with you. I don't think he's, um, I don't think he belongs in Chelsea's midfield uh, long term. Yeah, I mean, like you said, he, he's an old school English player, runs a lot, has good physicals. Um, we're seeing nowadays a lot of more technical players, you know, from England. Um, but I think that tells you what 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 the level of Chelsea has been. That that he's their best player. That he's regarded as their best midfielder for this season. He scored, um, the most goals in in the league for them, or it, it, if not, it's pretty high up there. So, yeah, Chelsea. Hey, as as a last as a last sort of point on Chelsea before we move on. Um. You, can, you guys can tell me if you agree with this. Chelsea is a team that when I look at their squad and I see the players that they have in each position, um, sticking sort of to that front six, their players are players who I think, damn, these are good players. You know, like you have Kaiseido, who is a strong player, you know, and it's, you know he still has a bit to prove, but very good player from what he showed at Brighton. Enzo, who I think is a fantastic player. Um, Mudrik, who I think is also a fantastic player, despite what has gone on at Chelsea. Inkunku, who I think is an absolutely elite forward. Um, maybe I use that term too strongly, right? You have Sterling, proven, you know, he's done it for years and he's shown he can be one of the best wide forwards in the world. And then you have Nicholas Jackson. And when I see that, I'm like, there's there's one thing here that does not belong. There's one person who does not belong, and that person is Nicholas Jackson. How have Chelsea decided, yeah, we're going to take Nicholas Jackson, and he's going to be our number nine to take us to the promised land? I just do not see it. I have never seen it with this guy. But it's no secret that Chelsea didn't need a striker. It, and even when you look on that midfield, all of those big-name players you talk about, I think only Sterling has been performing. Everyone else has been underperforming. So, and, and Palmer, miss... Cole Palmer. Was that? And and, and Cole Palmer. Palmer. Yeah. Oh, Cole Palmer. Yeah, Cole Palmer too. Yeah, true. So at that point, it's like I'm not even looking on Chelsea to say, "Yo, like who should you bring in?" All of these things. I think looking on the paper, looking at the names that have been brought in, those are, that's like you said, that's exactly a midfield on paper that should be challenging better, which is why I had them possibly coming forth as well this season, which is proving a terrible call at this point. Yeah, as in, don't get me wrong, you know, I'm not saying that Chelsea is, I'm not saying the source of their problems is Jackson, you know, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is on paper, their squad looks like they should be beating up teams. They should be walking teams, except for Jackson, in my opinion. He's the one player there who I'm kind of like, he's a striker that went for for this, you know, to be your, your, your target man up front. 
I just had never really seen it with him before. Maybe I didn't watch him enough to know what he can really bring to the table. But they seem to be, up to now, assembling a super team. And then they had Nicholas Jackson. So, I don't know. Maybe that's my lack of knowledge about him. But the Carabao Cup final featured two teams that were not participating in this year's Champions League. Uh, we had last week some, you know, some pretty easy to expect results. And then one or two, maybe not easy to expect results. Noah, I have to put this over to you. What happened to Arsenal? It was a couple of things. It was one I'll start off with the most. And it was... Don't nine. try to sound so excited, by the way. <laughs> I can't, bro. It's naivety. It's just it's it's naivety is the most. But the other thing is that I've been saying from time for Arsenal is is the is the chance creation, bro. Like I know that obviously it's not a secret that I believe we still need a striker. That many people still believe we need a striker. You believe that, but it comes back to. We can't be having one game where we score five, our next game we score three, and in the next game we struggle to get a shot on target. We have to spread that out consistently across each match. And this match against Porto, we were not creating, we were less intense than the opposition. And the third point, like I said at the beginning, naivety. And that's sim simple as that. And now we've pretty much shot ourselves in the foot. We need we need to make a comeback and a strong performance in the second leg. Wansag, what do you think? Do you think Arsenal can turn it around at the Emirates? Do you think that the, the home advantage for Porto was just too much for them on the day? Uh, I think so. I mean, I guess the only thing is Arsenal... Uh, fell short last year against the Portuguese opponent last year as well, uh, albeit in the Europa League. Um, it was at home as well uh, in penalties uh, against Sporting Lisbon. We'll see. I, I think Arsenal have enough. But, I mean, how, how do you spread that out? You know, I think they, exactly. they scored four against Newcastle. They scored six at West Ham. And they failed to um, register a shot on target at Porto. But how do you spread that out? I, I don't think it's necessarily down to uh, having a sh a striker necessarily, of course that would that would help. Of course, if you had Holland, that that would help. Um, I just feel it was, it's more it's just more than that. Is it is it the Champions League? You know, going away from home first leg is that kind of too much for a lot of these players? It's their first Champions League knockout match in their in their careers. Um, except for, except for Jesus maybe, and and Odegaard who who I don't know if he played at, at Real Madrid in the Champions League before when he was like eighteen. But I think at home, Arsenal have enough to overcome. And I, I need them to. Um, I need English teams to do well, but not too well um, for the for the fifth place spot in the yeah. Champions League season. So it's going to be back. Yeah. Um, I, I think you make a good point. It, it, I don't think it's about sort of, well, uh, when you say spreading it out, I, I just don't see how a team can consciously do that. I mean, you know, it's not as though Arsenal are choosing to score, you know, five goals against Burnley and then none against Porto, you know, as though they only have five goals 
to use this week. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it, it, it's a matter of, I think, when they do walk over teams like that, they just are playing a team that they, they have a plan, they know how to deal with them, they have stronger players, and the the teams can't cope with Arsenal. They can't cope with the quality that they have. Uh, but they know when they come to the Drago, Porto comes with a plan. This is how Porto um, plays. Porto play a strong defensive game. I think they kept Arsenal quiet. And they, I think, if, if correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think Arsenal had a shot on target. In no, the game no we, yeah, oh. we did. And it's, and it's not... That's why I say a lot of this comes down to, to naivety at the end of the day. But how you spread it out is by having variations in your attack. So if you look at the types of teams where we struggle the most to create chances over the course of the season, is teams that drop back deep. Is that is teams that sit back and defend. And this is where I say Arsenal needs... I don't want to say, oh, just a plan B, but we need variations of our attack. And you saw that actually against Newcastle this weekend, which is quite interesting because it I felt like earlier in the season, especially, it was Saka on the wing, Martinelli on the wing. And those motherfuckers would not move from the wing. They would stay there the entire game and it would be, let's get them the ball and then they get at the fullbacks. And then every single time is they get the ball and they get double teamed. And it's like, we need to change it up. We become too predictable. And it was funny because that same thing applied on our set pieces against Porto. And our set pieces are are, are struck one of our strongest points this season. And I felt like we were getting a lot of soft calls. To be honest, I mean, that's maybe my bias, but the European refs seem to referee different than the English refs. Which, okay, that's fine. We have to live with that. But we didn't see really much variations from our corners either. And it just becomes easy to defend, predictable. Well, that's why I said Porto came with our plan. And and they, they, they always do. I mean, I, I'll, I'll tell you this. Again, I have to say, it comes down a lot of the time to narratives. Because this loss at Porto feels like a huge deal. For Arsenal. And it is. You know, they're down in first. Like they, they have a job to do, second leg. But if that shot from Galeno at the very end does not go in, hits the post or comes out or anything like that, the game ends nil-nil. How do we look at that game? Do we look at it as, well, it's just a boring nil-nil uh, away draw for Arsenal at a tough place to go in Europe? And now they just have to make sure they get like the one nil or the two nil at home, which we expect them to do. I feel like that's how we'd be viewing it if that game ended nil nil. But because it's a loss, now it feels like, oh, damn, Arsenal, bit of a crisis moment. And that's what I brought up when when somebody had mentioned when Martinelli, because that the, the chance that led to that Galeno shot was Martinelli clearing the ball and he almost tried to start a counter-attack. And I even asked, I said, if that pass from Martinelli goes a little one inch to the right where the defender can't get it, one yeah. inch, we could have been looking at that saying, wow, Arsenal scored a last-minute counter-attack. Or like he said, okay, nilal, boring, nilal. And it just completely changes the narrative. But at the mm-hmm. end of the day, that is football. And we yeah. can be, you know, those margins, we just have to consider and accept them as what they are. 
I have a little quiz question for you guys. So Porto actually have a very um good record against English teams at home. And they actually went on quite a long run unbeaten in in their history. It, it was, you know, pretty relatively recent. It was their first ever defeat at home to an English team. Can you guys tell me who's the first English team and when to beat Porto at the Drago? This was recent, you said? Relatively recent, like within our lifetime. Uh. You may have even watched the game. It's not United. I'll give you a hint. A very famous goal was scored in that game. Oh, oh, it's United, huh, isn't it? With Cristiano, Cristiano, yeah, I remember. It was 2009. Yeah, I remember. Right, with his... Was it a 40-yard goal? Yep. It was it was damn close to that, yeah. One nil. That is the first English team to wow. win at the Dragao. And I remember it because United actually went, I think, one one or nil nil in the first leg. I'm if I'm not mistaken, at Old Trafford. I know they drew at Old Trafford. And then that was when the talk was was up because everyone said, Hey, Porto have never been beaten by an English team at home. You know, United have to win. So it's looking bad for them. And then they went and Broke the English hoodoo at the Drago. Oh. So you never know. Could be could be time for Arsenal to do the same, except at the Emirates. But moving on to another, the, maybe the other surprising result um, in the Champions League. We won't spend too long on this, but Lazio beat Bayern Munich 1-0. I mean, we'll say it's unexpected, but I mean, given Bayern Munich's that's three losses in a row. That's one of three losses in a row for Bayern, Bayern Munich. And now, on the end of all of that, Thomas Tuchel is leaving. I mean, given that he was, you know, more, I guess, in all of our collective sites, you know, not too long ago when he managed Chelsea, I mean, what do you think this says about Thomas Tuchel? Like, okay, he won the Champions League with Chelsea. He, you know, then had a very... You know, a, a pretty bad run with Chelsea. Got sacked, to, I think, in most people's minds, a little bit unfairly. You know, I think Todd Bowley was trying to do this whole revamping and just got rid of Tuchel. And now he's gone to Bayern, where he should be just walking everything. And he doesn't. He, he seems to be failing. W what does this come down to? Is it that he's just not a good coach? Is it that he's not the right man for Bayern? What do you guys think about Thomas Tuchel in general? I think everybody's wishing that we can go back to September of 2022, was it? When 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 he got sacked from Chelsea. Everything looked good then. You know, he was considered a, a legend among Chelsea fans. Bayern Munich were, were cruising with with um with Nagelsmann. Now, I'm not sure if any other big team's going to hire him. He had a row at PSG with with the owners. Chelsea, he fell out with the owner. And now at Bayern Munich, he's fallen out with the players. Even at Dortmund, he actually fell out with the owners. Yeah. Some people at, don't know that's why he left Dortmund. Yeah, he's always had issues with, with, with ownership. And now he's having issues with players too. He's always been known to be this tactic, you know, guru when it comes to tactics. He's never been known for any man management or, I mean, yeah. he's he's a bit of a freak um, from what, what people, people describe him as. So Kind of a weirdo. 
Yeah, a weirdo. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure where he can go next. He's failed at three big clubs, or uh, can I say failed at Chelsea? He, he, I mean, he won the Champions League, but he all he he fell out at the end. I mean, Roberto Di Matteo won the Champions League. <laughs> well, I mean, I I I see Thomas Tuchel as a really good coach in terms of the football that his teams tend to play. Obviously, that kind of changed at. Chelsea, he seemed to kind of play a not as attacking brand of football when he was there. But overall, that's what his teams have been. Dortmund, PSG have been, and even his Mainz team, actually. You know, they, they all play this kind of this kind of interesting attacking brand of football. And that's what he has been known for. Um, but now he's got this kind of reputation where he's just a bit of a journeyman, but not by his own wishes. He just ends up leaving the clubs where he's at. I don't know. Noah, do you have an idea of where he might even be able to go next? Um, Boy, I mean, I'm just looking at the options, I guess. I don't see him going to Liverpool, but I mean, that is an opening for him. I wonder if Manu continue to struggle. Maybe he gets a shot there. Not to say I don't think he's going to be successful, but I'm just thinking of possible openings, like literally. Um, and speaking about Manu, yo, they're, they're, they've lost now without Hoyland. Is he, I mean, are Manu nothing without Hoyland? Like, what, what's, what's going on with that now? Is there just too much reliance on him? Well, yeah, like you said, um, we this is the same football we've been playing. Um, sorry, that's this is the same football we've been playing. Um, the past what five five weeks? Um, except we didn't score because we we didn't have Hoyland. Um, I'm I'm not I'm not sure what what he's saying. It it just feels like. You know what? What all, all, every manager say when their time is coming to an end. You know we're seeing good signs, um, and a big picture we're going the right way. I'm not sure what picture he's looking at really. Um, I've I said it like six months ago that I don't see where he's what he's doing. Right? I I I I think I think back then I would maybe would have been called crazy, but now we're seeing we don't know what he's doing. Last year is the same story. I said last year we're a Marcus Rashford team. He carried us to 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 fourth we came in third yeah third place uh now he's struggling um and then Hoyland started banging in goals and we won what four or five games on the bounce without him and we, we just lose what do you what do you are you looking forward or excited to this new ownership a lot of man united fans seem to be reveling at the idea of sir jim yeah i i i didn't like the idea of him coming in as a as a part owner at first, um, keeping the glazers, I think a lot of people weren't. He has turned a lot of people on board um, with him and and his team. Of course, there's optimism when you're when you're hearing these stories. Um, we understand it's gonna take time. I don't know if Ten Hag is gonna be given that time. Somebody said every ten matches left. <laughs> like, you know, I just he's he's gotta do something to to convince the fans and the owners. And I'm not really sure what he's seen. Um, of course, you've had a lot of injuries, but <laughs> injuries—if we should not be playing like this, 
even with those injuries cons considered. Yeah. So I wonder if Tukel can be the guiding to to get your the rest of your team playing and not just be relying on either Hoyland or being the Rashford side, like you said. <laughs> but you know what? Two other teams just came to my head in La Liga who Tukel could possibly be 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 appointed to. And the big question is with Carla Ancelotti leaving. I wonder if Madrid is gonna be be a good spot for him. I mean, they're gonna need a striker. Uh, hear me, a striker. They're gonna need a manager, especially with the Mbappe arrival and to to kind of handle these whole big name players and to get to get a system going. But with with what we just spoke about him with his lack of success, can he do it? If 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 if, if anybody is going to Real Madrid, Liverpool, or Bayern Munich. Anybody who goes there that is not named Chabi Alonso is going to be second choice to Chabi Alonso. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's got to be first choice, I think, for all of those teams because they are really just, really just Bayern. Yeah, Bayern, Liverpool, or Madrid. The man has played for all of them. So it literally just fits perfect. Yeah. Well, I think it's going to be hard to get, get him. This summer, uh, I think he's going to want to have a go at, at the Champions League with Leverkusen. But, I mean, think about it. If you have Thomas Tuchel and, and Jurgen Klopp, who are you picking? 99% <laughs> of the times, you're picking the latter. So, Chris. I, I mean, I'm not... I'm. I, that's why I said I'm not sure where, where Tuchel's headed. There's so many viable options that are more appealing, that have proven more that have had more success, especially recently, than Thomas Tuchel. Oh, undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. Um, down the drain. Well, well uh, so we got to wrap this up soon, but uh, Noah, I wanted to just put something to you um, at the very end here, a question. So, since the 2003-2004 season ended, in 2010-11, Porto went an entire league season unbeaten. In 2011-12, Juventus went the entire league season unbeaten. Bayer Leverkusen in the 2023-24 season, 20 years on, they remain unbeaten and they have faced Bayern Munich twice. So they have no more Bayern Munich to face for the rest of the season. Do you think they can go unbeaten this season? And if so, is it really that special to go invincible? I'm going to make the claim and say, yes, they can. We are close enough to the end of the year, end of the season, that they can go ahead and do it, especially with the remaining fixtures they have. To ask if it is special, I mean, you did the math. 20 years on. 20 years? I mean, and, to, and what makes it a bit nicer for me is that it was not done in the Premier League. So I'll hold on to that as long as I can. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Bayern Munich have never done that, by the way. They, they, they've not done that this century. So that is really incredible. No, it really is. Yeah, I think Bayern Munich not having done it 
is more down to their dominance. If you're 15 points ahead, there's no reason to to uh, try your try your hardest when you have Champions League duties to attend to. Which Leverkusen are in the Europa League, so yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not sure if if they get it done. Europa League league combination is notoriously difficult. Yeah, and and you know they've never won the title, right? They're they're called yeah. never They've never won it, so that would really be special. Um, anyway. It was great talking with you guys. We're going to wrap this up now. We'll see you guys again next week, no?